Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Tuesday. We're talking USC Trojan football, fall camp in the rearview mirror, counting down like 11 days until the start of uh, USC's college football season. You got week zero coming up this weekend, so you get a little bit of uh, Pac-12 action with uh, Arizona going on the on the road to take on Hawaii. Not the road, because you have to fly there, but uh, you got all the way to Hawaii, so you got that. Miami and Florida are playing this weekend, so we get some college football, a little taste this weekend, and then full-on meal next. And of course, USC takes on Fresno State, but we got to see the... Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum and United Airlines Field uh, last Thursday. We also got to see this Georgia football team in full uniforms in said Coliseum on Saturdays. We'll talk about all that with Dan Weber, who we have on the line, and Keely Yor we have in studio. If you have any questions or comments for us, hey, send them in. Podcast at uscfootball.com is email. If you'd rather call or text us, you can do that too. We got some texts. We got some voicemails to play today. Podcast at uscfootball.com. That's the email. I'll give you the number this time. 424-254-9141. As many times as I read that, I hardly ever screw that up. So there's just, you know, reading the extra line there. Well done. It happens sometimes. Sometimes. When I was doing the podcast of champions uh, yesterday and and we were talking about, Dave will always talk about like, I could never do that every time. Like you just kind of get in a rhythm. Uh, but sometimes your mind wanders, and I read the email address twice instead of the phone number that time. But it uh, should be interesting. We also have – so we did have Harvey Hyde on uh, earlier this week. He's going to be on the line with us on Thursday. We're going to do a show. But also, Colin Cowherd will be in studio on Thursday. So if you have any questions specifically, he knows USC program pretty well. And Colin actually covered Harvey Hyde uh, when they were – when Harvey Hyde was the head coach at UNLV, Colin was a broadcaster in Las Vegas. So they Crazy. go they go way back. Um, so we're going to have both of those guys on this week. So if you have any questions for them, a voicemail or something, you can uh, – like I said, the number is 424-254-9141. Well, let's welcome in Keely Yor. Hello, hello. How, how are you, Keely? I'm doing well. A little tired, but doing well. Nice. And uh, we got Dan Weber. How are you, Dan? Doing good. Doing good. Can't wait. I don't. I, I'm not a big fan of mock game week. I, I just kind of like to go to right to game week and let's play. Yeah. Well, the good thing is you don't get to see it. So you know, if you if <laughs> yeah, you don't like don't it, you don't have to watch it. So that's touche. Gonna save on uh, save on sunscreen. Don't have to wear the old uh, bucket <laughs> golf hat. Uh, wear whatever shoes you want. I mean, it's uh, it's life is good. Yeah. For those who don't know that, so Saturday was the last practice we were able to see uh, fully. They. Uh, they've closed practices now, so we won't be able to watch what's going on. You can watch the first 20, 30 minutes. So they uh, start back up with practices again today. So we'll be able to watch them stretch and kind of warm up and then go out. So you can basically see who's dressed and who's not. It'll likely be full pads today. But as far as like quarterback rotation, like say JT Daniels gets like all the first team reps. Uh, we're not going to know that unless and if they do that, I don't know. Do you think Dan, they would do that and like not we're, tell us? We're, we're going to ask a lot of questions. Yeah, uh, there will be more uh, 
post-practice questions uh, required now because we don't see practice. So you're going to have to say who went first, who got how many reps, all of that kind of stuff. I know they're going to look at us like, why is this taking so much longer than usual? Um, there might be a reason. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see. It was extremely efficient the way it was done. Coaches and players were uh, media got their, you know, got stuff done, got their questions answered, went from one to another, and everybody got out of there. That's probably not going to happen now. Yeah. Uh, we'll see how it goes. I'm just curious. A new era. If you, if you remember, they did this back in 2013, I believe it was. Uh, Lane Kiffin uh, ended up closing practices. And then uh, when he was uh, fired, uh, you know, the tarmac <laughs> incident that's very famous, uh, Ed Orgeron, am I right? Ed Orgeron opened him back up again. Did yep. I get that right? Yeah. Immediately. Yeah. When he was named on Sunday, uh, he, he, he decided to open him up immediately. Uh, so I'm trying to remember how many weeks did that last Lane Lane closed it down. I think it was, was like gone. the last wait, uh, Orgeron went six and two. So it was like, uh, you know, four weeks into the season. Is that is that right? Yeah, but I was trying to remember, did, did, did Lane close it for a whole week, two weeks? Uh, did it go that long? Oh, I, he closed I, it. I think it was all was like, I think it was like the whole, <laughs> suite, like the whole, you know, his whole month of whatever he coached that. But I don't know. But, but that's the last time this happened. So that was um, six years ago or whatever. And uh, it was very strange. Keely, that was before your time. Right before my time. Yes. Right before your time. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not saying there's parallels there, but. You know, who knows? That's that's the last time they closed practices. That's what happened. It didn't last that long. So who knows? We don't know. Uh, Clay Houghton could wake up the next day and go, you know what? We're going to open up practices again. I don't think that's going to happen, but uh, maybe it will. But some positive stuff. Uh, we got to go out on Thursday, get a tour uh, of the Coliseum, uh, specifically the Scholarship Tower and the seven levels. We got to see a lot of those. I know it's unfortunate that many of the Fans that came out on Saturday were expecting to get a tour. They still don't have all the inspections and stuff done, so they weren't able to take the public through there uh, from what they were saying. But we got to see it, take some pictures. And, uh, I mean, overall, it's you're in that building. It's pretty nice. And people were – it was funny. When people would tell us that we didn't like the uh, – you don't like the the uh, design and all that kind of stuff. And, why, you know, why don't you like it? I'm like, look, for us, it's going to be great. We're going to be in this beautiful building. But I just don't think the beautiful building is – what's best for the Coliseum, but looking at what they've done, I think all of us agree that they did a pretty good job. Maybe start with you, Dan, and we'll get Keeley's thoughts too. Yeah. I mean, uh, it had to happen. They went almost the whole century without, you know, really, uh, even for the Olympics, uh, uh, they just didn't do all the things that needed to be done in a, you know, a century old building. So, uh, so all the safeties, all the new concrete, the new seats, um, the new rails, the new, uh, the Wi-Fi that I know, um, you know, people weren't happy that it wasn't working right away and then they did get it working. So, so that was a good thing. Um, when they get the elevators working and all that kind of stuff, it'll be, uh, uh, and it was, it was good to have a, a run through. Uh, there are those of us who think, uh, that the fundraising part of, of the decision making was more important than anything. And that in order to be able to raise the close to $315 million that went into it, they really went a little bit overboard on the tower. And if you're going to ask people for $10 million for a box, uh, you probably got to really give them 
something special. So it looks like they did, uh, that maybe 8,000 seats were lost in that shuffle, uh, the best seats in the place. That's kind of a, that kind of a negative because this is a Coliseum building that has most of the seats past the end zone, uh, on all sides. And that's not, so there weren't that many good seats to, to give up, but, uh, but the actual seats you're sitting in are going to be better seats. They're lighter weight. They're, you know, they're wider. They got cup holders. They, they've got uh, a longer tread. Um, and, and there aren't many stadiums in America of that size where every seat is an individual seat. I mean, most places that have the really big stadiums have a lot of benches in them. So, uh, so there's some, and then you, you get to see the original Parastyle. It's just absolutely you know, the best thing that's almost in any stadium in America. So, uh, uh, you know, you, you 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 still get the history, you still get the feel of of the Coliseum. If you get up to the top on the 1923 club, where Gilly uh, and I did the uh, instant analysis, it's just an absolutely marvelous view of the Peristyle and the Science Center and and downtown LA and the USC campus. I mean, it's just uh, so. Uh, even if you don't have seats, uh, I'll put out a plug for them. Uh, they're hosting all kinds of gatherings, weddings, and you know, you name it. Bar misses, all that. Come to the come to the USC nineteen twenty three club. You'll probably enjoy that. Yeah. What about you, Keely? Any uh, any thoughts? Pretty much what Dan said. I thought it looked really good. The thing that I just love is the parastyle being free, free to be itself. Free at last. Free at last. Someone tweeted me a like a before and after photo, like all of the just clutter that was just, you know, the video boards that yeah. were sitting on there and all that. There was just so much clutter around it. Now it's clean and pristine. It's beautiful. Yeah, no. So I, I really like that visual. Um, and then just the, the mural that they restored underneath one of the arches, that's beautiful as well. So I think you see more of, and, and with the last two years when it was just under construction and it just looks so messy, seeing the final product, it just looks so nice. Um, all the red seats, as one color i just think it, it it looks really nice and you know it is hard if if you're not in the actual sco- scholarship tower that's definitely you're not really getting all the perks of the renovation but if you are it's it's very nice yeah, uh, yeah and if you're in one of the c- sections that are near uh that are below the tower or next to it you also have access to that uh it looks like a hundred yard long concession concourse and it's again it's terrific and and the hope is that they could open that up to more and more people, but uh, it's under, it's right under the tower and it's a, a great feature. You can watch the game and get your concessions and it's just terrific. Yeah. The, the, is that the Lou Galen club for, okay. yeah, for the, anyone. So there's like 1200 club seats, I believe. And then those people have access to this. Uh, yeah. Like there's all kinds of TVs in there. There's all, you know, different concessions and stuff. So kind of a gathering place where you can kind of hang out and, you know, if it's really hot outside, you want to hang out and watch a quarter or something inside and, and eat a hot dog or whatever, or, or nicer food than that, then you can do all that stuff. So yeah, that's, I'm curious to see how everything goes on Saturday. Actually this weekend, the Rams will play there. So we'll get a little sneak peek of uh, what the Rams media thinks and what the fans and stuff think. And then uh, of course, USC Fresno state the following Saturday, August 31st. Uh, but the last practice we got to see, we already mentioned that things are closed off. Um, Keely, maybe get your, uh, we'll get a few thoughts. We, you know, we talked about this stuff. Well, I'm sure we'll get to things in the questions, but a few thoughts on, uh, what you saw from the, 
uh, fall showcase. Yeah, we actually have a lot of questions asking about what we saw in the fall showcase. So I oh. don't want to don't want to talk about it too much here. But I thought it's essentially what Dan and I said in instant analysis. Uh, they are what they thought we were. They were, you know, it, we saw what we saw in practice, maybe toned down a little bit, taken back. I think it was a little bit vanilla. Um, but I think for me, the offensive line is still a concern there. They weren't able to run the ball really well. And and granted, this is a tough defensive front. How tough? That will be the question we'll we'll learn going forward in this season. But um, I thought JT Daniels still looks like the guy for me. Um, I'm curious to see if we see that. We won't see it being narrowed narrowed down this week, if we'll hear if it's been narrowed down. Um, But for me, it was just what we expected from this team. It wasn't anything new from what we've been talking about of what we've seen in practice so far. Yeah. Any any, uh, quick thoughts, Dan, before we jump into some of these questions? Well, I, I do think some of the criticism might be a little unfair, for example. I mean, we knew coming in, off of last year, uh, Graham Harrell was like a 52-48 uh, pass run ratio at North Texas. So yesterday or Saturday, uh, we've got a defense that everything, everybody you talk to, everything you hear is our number one priority: stop the run, stop the run, stop the run. And they're out there; they're going to stop the run. So USC, I think they threw the ball 66 times. They ran it, I guess, 17, which that's what they're going to do. If a team is determined to stop the run, USC is not going to run it. I mean, they're going to take what, what you give them. Uh, the, the idea with this offense is they're going to be prepared to take either one. So, so I think in some ways with a defense that's just geared at this point to stop the run, I mean, they threw for over 600 yards. And so um, they took what, what they were given. It makes a little life a little more difficult on the corners, uh, and you know they've got to get uh, got to get pressure on the cornerback. And this isn't that traditional offense where you're really trying to set up and you need you know four seconds. Let's say uh, you just need two and a half seconds most of the time. So, so I think maybe a little bit of the, you know the criticism was over over you know overplayed, but uh, they didn't they didn't turn the ball over and and. So you can you can look at that two different ways. Oh, what's wrong with the defense? They're not creating any takeaways. Now they have been in, in fall camp, but they didn't Saturday. Or, you know, good job by the offense. They're taking care of the ball. That's the that's kind of the problem when you're playing yourself. You can easily uh, look at it either way. And if you're determined that this team can't be any good because the head coach, you know, isn't isn't the guy that, that can take USC where it wants to go and he didn't make enough changes and he still got guys there that shouldn't be there. If that's your, your theory, then you can look at almost anything that happens and say that's a result of the offensive line can't, can't block or the cornerbacks can't play you know, pass defense. That's, you know, maybe that's right. But you're going to have to wait and see until uh, they play somebody if you're absolutely correct there. Yeah. All right. Well, we uh, we probably we probably. Ryan, can... what were your thoughts? You were there too. Oh, I did see that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I I was waiting for really the offensive line to get a situation like this where you can see, okay, that that makes sense now. I, I like the the first six seven guys they got. They're going to be able to get some push and and really run the football. We didn't see that, and it's hard, you know. Like, is it was the offensive line terrible? Was the defensive line amazing? Did they just they were going to throw the ball because they try to find out who's the quarterback and they weren't really worried about that. I mean, I think there's a lot of different factors going into it. So 
it was sort of like a, a wait and see thing for the, the offensive line in the run game for me. I'm still waiting and seeing, so I don't think we know anything uh, from that. But you know, it's uh, it was good to see everyone out there in the uniforms. Uh, it was good to see um, being able to run first team, second, first team versus first team, second team versus second team, and it wasn't like some in years past you might have mostly first team with some second team. And then the second team is like a lot of reserves and walk-ons. Like it wasn't like that. It was, you had full teams of scholarship guys going at it. So that's different than I think we've seen before. So I think the depth is, is better. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things where whatever you're going to take out of it, you know, if you're going to make some grandiose conclusions from, Oh, they're going to be terrible. Like it's hard. I think that's really hard to say, but yeah. uh, you, if you felt good about the wide receiver core, it didn't make you feel any worse about them watching them go out and make plays. Uh, I think the passing game is going to be fine. I, some of the other stuff I'm not sure about. Yeah, makes sense. Um, I, do think, I think the one other thing we're not giving them maybe enough credit for dealing with is the only running back that has any kind of experience at all is Vavad Malapai, and he hasn't been available. And I do think they missed that experienced running back who kind of understands how things work. I mean, Stephen Carr has gotten really very little uh, play in his, his two years with the injuries and all that. And, uh, um, you know, Marquis Stepp you know, was able to keep his red shirt. And Keenan Christen, you know, he's just out of high school. So I do think there is that factor as well uh, with the run game. But I yeah. think they need Vi. Yeah, I think that would definitely help. Um, all right, before we jump into uh, questions and stuff, I want to thank our sponsor, Trader Joe's. They've been awesome to us. And I got I, there was a ruse last night. I don't know if you saw. I saw it on Instagram. My Instagram story. So my wife uh, went out and she picked up some salmon and some like uh, broccoli and a couple of potatoes from Trader Joe's. And she made dinner last night, which was nice. I was like kind of working a lot. So it was nice. She kept, You know, she was making dinner and uh she's like oh i have dessert for us too and she made like this little plate of like uh there were some strawberries and bananas and blueberries she all got from trader joe's but then there was like a, a chocolate dipping sauce with some like almond shaving stuff on top of it and i was like oh that's good so we were we had little toothpicks and we were dipping the fruit in the chocolate i'm just eating it away and i like chocolate i mean i'm a sweet tooth and she had it like i didn't even notice she had it like covered with a paper towel and then she starts like filming me. I'm like, oh, guess what you're eating? And I was like, okay. So it wasn't, uh, it was chocolate hummus. So it still tasted pretty chocolatey. So I don't know how what the mixture of chocolate and hummus or whatever is, but we were dipping our fruit in this Trader Joe's chocolate hummus. And it was actually, I, mean, I, I kept eating it. Uh, it was really good. So. so you had no idea that it was hummus? No clue. No, it was just, it was just some kind of chocolate thing and with some nuts on it and some fruit. And uh, I enjoyed it. So, you know, if you, it's, I'm guessing, it's a little healthier than just like a bowl of chocolate. So I would assume so. I would hope. Uh, so if you want to go out and try the chocolate hummus with some of the different fresh fruits from Trader Joe's, I would recommend that. That's what we had for uh, dessert last night. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, but thanks to Trader Joe's. You make sure you check them out uh, at the uh, USC Village. If you're going to do some tailgating and stuff, uh, check all that stuff out. All right, Keely, uh, where do you want to start? Well, first, we have a brief question from John in Oakland who says, so do you think that the USC Fall Showcase should or will become an annual August event? Hmm, interesting. Well, I mean, I think there was some pushback from some of the alumni football players because they wanted to, you know, they were recognized on the field, 
Um, and they got announced and everything, uh, you know, it, so they they kind of incorporated that part. The whole barbecue thing, sitting with players is something I think a lot of people liked. This felt more like a spring game sort of thing. Um, maybe it's a combination of they haven't had spring games there because of the renovations and they wanted people to come out and see it. I'm not sure. Um, I kind of would like Salute Detroit to still exist, but if you want to do some kind of showcase as well, that would be nice. Uh, what, what do you think, Dan? Yeah, I think they've got to get the program back to where people really want to want Salute to Troy and will show up for Salute to Troy. And you probably got to make sure that, you know, your coach is going to be uh, okay with uh, Salute to Troy also. And um, so, but I think a program like USC ought to be able to handle both. I don't know that they were able to uh, uh, salute the uh, alumni football players appropriately. That was a pretty small turnout. I mean, the 2009 class maybe had 20 guys, but the next, the uh, 1969 and 94 classes put them together, and they might not have hit 20 guys. So uh, I didn't think that was that was not the kind of turnout you would see at Salute to Troy. I just think you know it's more of an kind of an intimate thing. You know, a dinner, a big big dinner, obviously, and it's on campus. And I like having both. I think. I think doing both, and the problem with doing it at the Coliseum is there's no one place big enough, even with the 500 people you can put on the uh, uh, the the top, you know, the rooftop, the 1923 club. I don't know. Maybe maybe you could uh, in that uh, concourse, uh, the new uh, uh, concourse on on the you know the main level. It's like a you know, football field long, so you might be able to accommodate the um, the same kind of crowd you used to get with Salute to Troy when that would take up the whole um, uh, field there, Cromwell Field. Uh, but but I'd, I'd like to see him do both. Yeah. All right, Keely, any thoughts, sir? I mean, I think it's a, a good event. I don't know if it was good only because it's like, ta-da, it's the new Coliseum, and there's something besides football going on that made it more interesting for for fans i don't know i think like dan said if you're going to do anything like that you need to have um a good football team to show off going forward mm. yeah, i think the other thing yeah um shade well, I, well it wasn't shade I, yeah. it was just me saying like if there's another five and seven season yeah, do you really yeah, think yeah, there would be a high attendance shade I, think, Ryan. <laughs> I think the other thing is i'd be surprised if they keep doing some kind of a public um, game two weeks before the season. I, I'm still shocked that they did it, to be honest. Uh, I mean, you could have brought a busload of Fresno State people down to watch the, uh, you know, pay 15 bucks or whatever it was at the gate and, and watch, uh, what USC does and who it does it with. I just, I'm, I'm not sure that that just works. I just, you know, I don't, I don't want to be too cynical, but, you know, like this year, you've got a new, new, a lot of new coaches. You've got a completely new offense. Uh, everything is different. And if you're Fresno, you're not probably going to get a whole lot out of watching North Texas film from last year. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I, I would keep doing a, uh, a public game as much as we like to see things open. I wouldn't do a public game uh, two weeks before the opener. That's a good point. Really interesting that, you know, 
I think I think this might be unique because they haven't been able to do a spring game. And would you rather have USC fans come out and see the Coliseum first or Rams fans next weekend? So maybe it was a one-off thing. And speaking of which, we have multiple questions asking about because it's two weeks before the start of the season, what did they actually show? So first, John Brea says, I'm wondering, with 10,000 people in attendance for an open to the public scrimmage, do you think Coach Helton was just baiting opponents? I'm hoping they were holding back on some dynamic play calling, especially in the run game. Or do you think this is as good as the offense gets right now? And then Frank in Sacramento, Sacramento said, the run game was missing in action in the showcase. This may have been by design. Everyone knows USC has five-star receivers and QB depth. So they showed all that on Saturday. But going forward with experienced running backs, returning offensive linemen, and closed practices, I look forward to some mystery and a running game to be re- revealed in two weeks. I think you're right, and I hope you're... I mean, for USC's sake, uh, you better be right. I do think there were things that they could have done in the run game against uh, the defense that USC was throwing up against them, and they didn't. Uh, they just did not do any of that kind of thing. So, um, uh, so I think that was certainly part of it. Uh, but, uh, I mean, we didn't, you know, you didn't see any kind of counters and it's just a lot of stuff you didn't see, uh, which makes a lot, of, makes a lot of sense. And, and that's right. I mean, you can't kind of hide the passing game. I, again, I think Keel's right. Vanilla is. You know, vanilla was the word, but they wanted to play with enthusiasm. They wanted to really go all out. They wanted to, you know, get something for the defense, which I thought they did. They wanted to get something for the offense, which they did. Uh, they did a lot of things well. Uh, you know, they got to do the run through. They got to be in the Coliseum. A lot of, you know, for a lot of those guys, that's a lot bigger place than anywhere they've ever played in their lives. And, uh, they did that out of the way. It might be a real lesson for what USC ought to be doing when they go on, on the road um, because they've been really pushing hard to get what to get rid of the performance anxiety at the Coliseum. Um, you know, you can have performance anxiety at Notre Dame and Husky Stadium and BYU and a lot of other places too, uh, Sun Devil Stadium. Uh, it might not be uh, the worst idea to treat the road games just the way, you know, they've been treating uh, – uh, getting ready to play in the Coliseum. Yeah. I will say, though, I think even the passing game, just we've seen it be more complex. We've seen guys kind of get by defenders, find open grass. I think we've seen even more crossing routes, stuff like that, where yeah. it just. It's, I, think the, I think you were exactly right, Kill. The crossing routes, we didn't see much at all. Maybe yeah. one. I think you're. And the complexity, you're exactly right. I couldn't be more right, I think. Well, I don't want to give too much analysis on this podcast. Uh, We have. (laughs) I didn't want to cut you off. I just just think that's a really good point. It's hard to be vanilla with those receivers and those quarterbacks and the way they're throwing the ball. But I still think that was pretty vanilla. And yet, they did a pretty good job of getting something out of it. A lot of times, the teams go vanilla; they don't get much out of it. I don't think got as much as you could. But I think you're you're exactly right. You wouldn't get everything that you wanted out of watching that that scrimmage yeah and I think when you you hold it back it kind of looked more like hero ball which mimics the 2018 offense but I don't think we've seen a lot of hero ball in the practices prior to the showcase no and 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 I know people say oh they underthrow it I do think there is a strategy the underthrow I mean they are uh, JT has always been the back shoulder guy 
And I think the receivers have become very aware of going back to get the ball. And I think they feel like they've got an advantage. They're almost always in the matchups, a one-on-one matchup. It's a bigger USC player against a smaller defender. But those were two of the big, uh, you know, big players in the scrimmage were, uh, were guys coming back for the ball and the defender not being able quite to play it. And I know that looks like, oh, they, just, they got lucky or the bad throw. I think there's a little method uh, to that madness. I think they really are working on uh, on letting guys come back and get the ball. Yeah, there was a uh, – it did it, – some of it felt a little like last year. Like the, that's, the, yeah, that's yeah, what I was yeah, trying like to – the deep balls, like you were saying. So, eh, I, so don't, don't look too much – into it don't think this is you know this is how the entire season is going to go um yeah so it's it's out there you got to see it did they show everything probably not it wouldn't be smart if they did there'd yeah. be some serious questions if graham harrell comes out there and shows his whole hand like that's right. just that's just wrong but when you only have like four running plays like you you know did you show them all maybe you only ran it two different running plays i'm not sure um i think that's about right yeah <laughs> We have an email from Andrew Hogue who says, does Clay Helton really think that anyone believes this isn't JT Daniels' team? He had the exact same competition last year, and he chose a true freshman over the others. What is this team getting out of not having a defined leader at QB1? Well, I, yeah, um, I don't know that they're not, they don't have a defined leader. I, I don't know. I, I'm a little puzzled by the kind of way people are want to be critical of JT. I mean, I thought under the circumstances with that offense, with the way they practiced with that team, the way things were going, I thought he hung in there pretty darn well for a, for a true freshman. I, I thought, I thought he, you know, that was a real, really a positive year in so many ways, but, but we get, you know, these questions or these comments about this or that or the other thing. For example, if Graham Harrell said you really need to work on, on JT's leadership, I think the reason, and JT's the one they coach up hard and they coach up publicly. And the one guy that at times, as Gerard found out, that they match him up with you know, walk-ons and, and uh, you know, wide receivers and, and the offensive line, and they really want to see how he can coach him up or bring him along and kind of coach him up himself. Uh, you don't see that with the other quarterbacks. I think they really are pushing, pushing, pushing JT, and they're more public in what they say about him, and then people pick up on it and say, oh, he can't be a leader like somebody else or somebody else. And uh, I think he's kind of taking a bum rap there, but uh, but I can see that they're they're pushing him because they think he's got the highest ceiling. And uh, you've got to push the guy that had 11 starts last year. I mean, those 11 starts are really valuable and uh so if you're gonna say i think they did more of a competition here than most places would have done uh with a guy who had the 11 starts and who came in with all the uh and he he still showed all the different things he could do throwing the ball uh last year so so i'm not you know one of those people who thinks jt can't you know lead the team at all i don't i don't see that at all he's in a lot of ways, he's kind of a guy. He doesn't show many nerves. He doesn't. He doesn't get all uptight. I think 
there are ways in which you can be a really good leader by doing those kinds of things. So, uh, so I'm, I'm probably not going to buy into the, uh, he's a, this is a team without a leader if he's a quarterback because they just gave him the job. I don't think that's the case at all. Yeah, I, I guess what I was getting from his question was he feels like JT Daniels should just be named the starter. I think is that is that the impression you kind of got from him? And I you know, and I don't disagree uh, with that. And if you watched the competition last year, people say, "Oh, they should have been this guy, this guy." I mean, it was very clear in practice who was better. Like there was mm-hmm. no. You know, and Jack Sears and Matt Fink had a spring ahead of them, and they both were, um, to be politically correct, terrible in the spring. So they were bad. They just were not. They were not good. And and to their, you know, to defend them a little bit, they were running a really crappy offensive scheme that that you know I don't know anyone that would have done a really good job. You have to be like Sam Darnold. You have to be the number three pick in the draft to make that offense work. And uh, JT did it better than those guys. Um, now they all look better in in the fall because they're running a better system. Um, so, I mean, that's good, but I, I feel like Andrew's just saying, just name him the starter already. Like most people think he's the, he's the guy. Which we've advocated uh, for. Uh, Sorry, Dan, you can go. No, that's okay. Go, go, go. Which I, I think we've just talked about whoever it is, whoever the starter is going to be at some point, you need to establish that chemistry more. And that's something that the team complained about. So I, I guess to Andrew's point, I think we all agree here that I don't think it, you help your team by, by dragging this on longer than it needs to be. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the competition thing is because they want that throughout the, the team and they felt like they didn't have it last year and they didn't. And guys weren't competing in practice. And as year as the year went on, you know, if you were a penciled in as a starter, you stayed as a starter, and nobody challenged anybody. So I think in the highest profile position, they want to emphasize the competition theme, which they're going to carry out by not naming the or not listing the depth chart until Friday of every week. And I, it, they do have more competition, and and some of it is because they're really working at it. Some of it is they've got more guys who can play and think they can play and are, are trying to beat somebody out. But uh, uh, there probably comes a time where you just, with the quarterback, you got to say, time to go. Let's go. Yeah. It's, you know, you want eight, ten receivers working with a guy, let him work with the guy, you know, like he's, he's got to move on. And if he, you know, if he, you name the starter and he doesn't look very good, you can, you got four other, three other dudes, you can move on from there, so. What do you guys expect for the timeline going forward? Because we don't, Helton hasn't given us a, a clear timeline. No, I mean Graham Harrell seemed to think post fall, you know, fall uh, showcase, and Clay Helton was saying like, you know, twenty five practices, which I don't think they're doing, but you know, up until like the start of the Fresno State game, um, probably somewhere in the middle. I, you know, by the time everyone's listening to this, it'll probably be like we're really putting this up like right before we head out to practice. Um, it, you might know, like they, maybe they named a starter by the time this happens, but I, I'm thinking maybe they pare it down a little this week, but I, no, no, that's a tough choice. I don't think, I think we do nothing this week, maybe next yeah? week. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, cause I mean, that's like a tough choice yeah. to say, Hey, we're going to eliminate two people. That doesn't seem like it's in Clay Helton's like wheelhouse where like you have to like tell two people to get, you know, they're kicking them to the curb and it's going to be between Sears and Daniels or whatever. So I think it's just going to be, they're going to name a starter. That's le- that's less like cutting you have to do. You just cut everybody at once. So that's my, my initial thought. If, if, if it's me, I think the easiest way to go and, and the most kind of definitive decision kind of you could make is as, as well as Keaton Slovis is playing, 
he's a brand new freshman, just came in. Um, you probably, he's not in the mix. And I think at this point, and, uh, you know, there was a and for a while there, we're thinking, oh, is he going to be the guy emerges as number two? I don't think that's happening now. Uh, so he could, he could not be in the mix and that's not a big problem. Uh, with the, uh, with, if you go with JT, I don't know. Do you have to name a second guy? You've got two distinctly different kinds of quarterbacks there, both who got a chance to step in, uh, last year with JT Hurt. Uh, with uh, Matt at uh, Utah and then uh, Jack in the Arizona State game. And I don't know, maybe you don't name a number two guy and, and you just figure out how to you know, keep it going with those two. But, uh, but I think that, uh, Clay talked about his meeting after taking Sunday off, he's meeting with Graham yesterday. Uh, that seemed to be a signal of something. Uh, my guess is it wouldn't be totally out of the picture to name somebody today. Now, the ideal thing would be to reward all of those people who are coming to practice, even for 20 minutes, by not announcing that until uh, the end of practice, so that the people who come and cover practice catch the story, rather than put it out on a you know an announcement before practice today. That would be the way I would go. But uh, that's just me. Yeah. What do you think, Keely? Do you think they're gonna? I think the the fewest like decisions that have to be made, the, the fewest like toes you gotta step on, is the direction it's gonna go. So I don't think they're gonna cut it down, and it's like you eliminate some and then eliminate others, like like a reality show. I think it's just gonna name a starter. If it was clear where you're like, wow, there's two guys really in this, then maybe I could assume that. But I, I just I just feel like it, I think it might be you, Ryan, what you think. And, and the interesting is that because we're not going to be at practice with Sam Darnold and Max Brown, you could tell when there was a switch. You knew, yeah. OK, this is what's happened. We won't really know until if it's, hey, talk to Clay Hilton first before you talk to the players. And it's like, OK, hold on. Something's happened. But I think if I best case scenario, I think they come out and say, hey, we have our starting quarterback. This is what we're doing. Mock game week. We know what we're doing. Will I think they do that? Not sure. I think they'll wait till the next Saturday mock game week scrimmage, announce captains, and announce the starting quarterback. Ah, all right. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think post mock game week probably makes the most sense, but we'll see. We will see. Um, yeah, for the schedule. Hey, uh, just real quick before we jump into anything else, we have. It's uh, kind of loud. Breaking news. So there's been a question. There's a lot of questions about the Coliseum. Like some people want to know, is the noise going to be better or worse or whatever? I mean, I don't really know. It's hard to tell. We don't know what the noise is going to be. But people were asking, and I know you, Keely, you went on like a roundtable podcast with the Rain of Troy people I and did. the and the uh, Traveler Hates Thursday people um, about, hey, will there be those Heisman jerseys back in you know under the peristyle? So. Talk to, I, you know, we're DMing with an athletic administrator and he's saying, yep, we'll look brand new, uh, but he's not sure if they're going to be there by the first game, but they're still getting So the jerseys back. are still a thing? The jerseys will still be a thing, uh, but they're they're in process. So I don't know. They might not be ready by Fresno State. Okay. Apparently. So uh, that's good because people seem to really like those jerseys. I know Alicia was like flipping out if the she jerseys were She was very there. sad about it, yes. Yeah. So, you know. 
I'm like, their podcast will break some news on ours and we'll just. Oh, wow. <laughs> we so love those shade. Guys. Well, you know, they invited you on to invite me on. And they totally did. And I asked you. They did? Yes. Oh. You just have a bad memory. <laughs> did they really invite me on that? Yes. And I told you to practice and you're like, oh, cool. And then you didn't say anything. Well, I, I mean, I don't know. I, did, I was expecting something like, you know, written, you know, like, it's th- hey, just kidding. Not me. Not. Take it up with that, Michael Castillo. Uh, yeah, but keeping nice. with the quarterback theme, Rob okay. in Santa Clara says, do any of our quarterbacks look as good as Mason Fine in this offense? Which SCQB plays similar to Fine? Hmm. I guess I may not have. I mean, when you watch North Texas, the first thing you see is, they're not playing against the athletes that USC is playing against. So you do get not the same sense of, I mean, I think even with Graham, he's not sure how this is going to go because they haven't ever done this with athletes that USC can put on the field. So it's a different, I'm, I would say probably JT. I think JT, one of the things he got to do at the Manning Passing Academy is talk to Mason Fine. And one of the things I think they really focused on is what was Mason Fine's first indicator when he comes to the line of scrimmage? What is the one thing he looks for uh, in order to know where, because they got, you know, two and a half seconds and it's go time for throwing the ball. And quarterbacks need to kind of be able to process, uh, what am I looking for? What am I, in terms of the coverage, and again, they're running the same offense, and uh, I think JT eventually came to the conclusion that the thing, after talking with Mason Fine and, and trying to see how do you see the defense when you come up uh, for the snap, uh, it, it will be how do they cover the flats? What am I seeing from the corners and the coverage of the flats? That, that will be his first indicator on, on how he approaches this thing. And because it's so quarterback friendly and kind of plug and play, I don't know that it's an offense that's designed to maybe build on the differences between quarterbacks. I think it's one that kind of has the ability, as we've seen with, uh, with Matt Fink and Jack Seaton and Keaton, they kind of all morph into a guy who can take advantage to some extent of the same thing. This offense. Uh, has a tendency to do that. But if I had to, you know, say which one looks more like Mason Fine, I would say uh, probably JT, but you don't know that you're ever going to find where you just say, this guy looks just like this guy. Uh, JT might have a better arm. Mason Fine might, you know, have, have better feet. I don't, you know, I haven't seen enough of him to really do that, that analysis. Um, speaking with the sticking with the offense, I have a voicemail question. Um, let me play it for you and uh, get your thoughts. Here you go. Hey guys, this question is for Dan and Healy and Ryan, any of y'all really. Uh, and I just was wondering, are we attacking the middle of the field with the passing game? I know that sometimes in spread offenses or air raid offenses that it can be easy to fall in love with the short outside and the outside passing game and deep outside passing game. But, you know, honestly, one thing that I saw with Texas a few years ago is they, when they had a similar kind of offense under Charlie Strong is 
you know, basically they never attacked the middle of the field. And because of that, over time, the teams adjusted and just basically put press on the end and then two high safeties. And then it took away the short, intermediate, and long outside passing game. And then they didn't have an inside passing game to counter it. So are, are we able to attack the middle of the field in the passing game in practice? And I don't know, maybe y'all can't answer that uh, without giving things away. So if you can't, that's fine. Um, but anyways, fight on, Jason Longhorn Country. Yeah, uh, Jason, uh, actually they are attacking the middle of the field. I think uh, uh, one of the, well, two of the touchdowns, if you count the – I don't know if you count the Eric Kromenhoek uh, where he came back for the ball. I, that was kind of middle. Uh, certainly the the one touchdown where there probably was busted coverage, uh, but uh, I guess that was Amon Ra. Uh, and then uh, I think one of the things in this offense that allows you to kind of attack the middle of the field are the crossing routes. And – where you get somebody, you know, from the slot or a couple of somebodies in the slot who uh, do those shallow crosses. And those things, uh, you, it's hard to, you know, if you're a, you know, a DB and you're trailing them or if you're a linebacker trying to pick them up, those are really hard to, it's hard to handle. So uh, and I think the other thing that's interesting with this offense is when they get in the goal line, they'll throw the ball into the middle. I mean, they'll throw the ball to Devin Williams or, uh, you know, a tight end and, and they'll take advantage of the middle when they, um, when they get the tight end in motion as an H back and then they slip him out quickly off tackle. And one of the things they like to do with those guys is uh, run them down, uh, run them down the middle. So, so I think, yeah, this is not Lane Piffin's offense where everything went outside the hash marks or whatever. Uh, I think. And I don't think, you know, JT, I don't think any of them are ready to throw the ball down the middle. So, uh, but yeah, I think they're definitely going to uh, attack the middle. And I think there was a few, if you watch, um, you know, we said they didn't reveal everything. But when you look at, uh, there were some plays out there that seemed like, okay, these were those throw to grass receiver and quarterback being on the same page. I think there was a slant. It might have been JT Daniels and Devin Williams for one of the touchdowns. Yep. Well, yep. he just kind of cut, he just cut inside. He just, he, there was a hole in the zone and, um, you know, JT just hit him like just right away. It was just boom, boom, quick play. And then Williams made the last guy miss or broke a tackle and walked into the end zone. Um, just, you look at that play and I'm like, okay, I don't remember something like that. I think that's one of those ones that Graham Harrell has brought. And you'll probably see more of those kind of things where you just sort of recognize like, yeah, I, I and that's more, I mean, it was, it started outside, but it, it came more towards the inside, but I feel like they're going to, you know, not ignore. I think that the whole point is you got to make them defend the entire field. So I don't think you're going to see, you know, all the sideline passes and everything. We saw a bunch of them in the, yeah. in the scrimmage, but I don't think during the season that's going to be uh, what, like what you've seen so often. And I feel like the only real way they used the middle of the field in 2018 was just with Amon Ra, St. Brown. Yeah. You know, and they, they'd send him over the middle and that just became kind of the gimmick where you knew he was kind of doing that. Whereas I feel like that's just, it's completely different in this offense with Graham Harrell. They use, like you said, Ryan, every piece of the field. So uh, look out for that in the regular season. Yeah. Andrew, and well, they, they don't have to hold the tight ends in the block. I mean, that was mm-hmm. one of the ways that they lost being able to throw that pass because they were, you know, they felt 
so uh, uncertain about their offensive line that they had to keep the tight end in the block. So there wasn't anybody to run uh, down there. They just yeah. they weren't a, a factor. Yep, that's a good point, too. Yeah. Andrew in San Diego says, what's Tim Drevno's take on the quarterback competition, and do they need to change up protection based on the QB? Hmm. Hmm. Tim, we can't get Tim to give us a, a take on the offensive line. I don't think <laughs> yeah. he's even remotely. And I'm guessing he wouldn't give us one on the running backs, even though he was a running backs coach for part of last year. So his uh, take on the uh, on the quarterback probably – you know, uh, and I know if they're saying, well, I'd rather have a guy who can run like crazy in case we screw up and break down and all that. And I don't think, I don't think he goes there at all. Uh, I just think, I think they're pretty comfortable that, that they can, that they can protect all the quarterbacks. So I, I think they feel like they're going to be able to, that doesn't mean they were able to necessarily every single play Saturday and all that. But I think they're fairly, fairly confident in, uh, in, in whichever quarterback is there that they're going to be able to protect him. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't, we're not going to really get that kind of data from, uh, especially a guy like Tim Drevno. So we, you know, we talked to some of the guys and even on the offensive line and no one's, no one's told me of the guys that I talked to that they're leaning one way or the other, or if they block differently for one guy or the other. So it did, they're not going to reveal their hand. So, I mean, it'd be interesting to pick their brain, but we're not going to kind of get that from them. Yeah. Unless we like bump into them a bar and get them to have a few beers and maybe something like that, but outside of that, and even then, we can't tell you what they said. Yeah, that would be a that's off the line. Ralph and Folsom says, "Hey, folks, I've heard people speculating that Ben Griffiths could be one and done. By what rule could he do that? The three year old, the three year rule doesn't apply to Aussies." P.S. Dan and Ryan, you need to give Griffiths one of your old guys rule t shirts. <laughs> Ralph and Folsom, nice. I don't have any of those, Ralph. Uh, <laughs> And and we have asked, I know I asked uh, Coach Baxter about that, and he said he absolutely has no idea how that would work if, if somebody could go one and done in this situation. He, he said he doesn't know that rule or that that rule exists. I don't either. I mean, we've asked. Uh, and I just still keep asking. Uh, you get to... <laughs> <laughs> you get the sense Ben really wants that degree. He wants to be a teacher. He seems to like it. He's already had one pro career. I mean, he, he clearly wants a second one. But when you look at the NFL now, kickers are going into their 40s because they're staying in shape and they're making it, you know, enough money that's really worth their while. I was thinking was it two years ago, not a single or three years ago, not a single new punter broke into the league because all the guys stayed. Um, so, uh, I don't know that he needs to go. And obviously, um, they're coming from Australia. Who was it? Somebody, um, was it 24 seven that had the, uh, uh, freshman all America team for this year. And they picked yeah. a 24 year old Aussie rules kicker from you who went to Utah. I'm saying they only picked him because he went to Utah and who knows, maybe you get better stats there. But if there is a better kicker, better punter in college football. Uh, he's a freshman. Uh, I, I, I haven't seen him. That'll, that'll be a fun matchup, I guess, uh, when Utah comes here with uh, two Aussie rules guys uh, punting against one another. And yeah. we'll see who win, wins that one. The, um, so I was funny. I was watching some NFL preseason last night, and uh, Mitch Wisnowski, who the, you know, the Utah 
punter. Um, and they, they've, their last two punters won the Ray Guy Award. So I think they, they do a, a really good job there. So you're going to probably give them the benefit of the doubt as far as the preseason stuff goes. But he made he was a kickoff specialist, too. So he's their punter, but he's also the kickoff specialist. And uh, absolutely, like, he was like the third guy down the field and destroyed a guy. And, he, you know, he played Australian rules football and stuff as well. When you think about it, like, this dude's 28 years old. If he wants to go and be an NFL player, like, are you really going to try to stop him at that point? I don't know if the – I didn't hear that before, that the three out of high school rule doesn't apply to Aussies. But I would assume – now, you don't want to make this assumption because the NCAA is a bunch of morons. But you're talking about a guy who was drafted, played professional football overseas, it comes to – you know comes to USC. Somehow he's a redshirt freshman. I don't understand that either, but, um, and then goes and they're not going to let him go to the NFL if he wants to do that afterwards. So I, that just seems baffling to me, but maybe that's the case. And I, and I, that might be the NFL's rule as opposed to the, uh, you know, the NCAA's rule. I think the one thing, for example, if you play, uh, sort of, uh, let's say basketball, in Australia, and you played at the level uh, Ben played at, each year you played, I think, works against your NCAA eligibility. However, they rule, Aussie rules football is a completely different sport, okay? My guess is if schools like USC especially take advantage and have really, 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 really good punters coming in, it would surprise me if, Someone at the NCA said, you know, maybe we should categorize Aussie rules football as regular football. And you can't come in after an eight-year or nine-year pro career because that will get a lot of publicity. If he is, we've seen him, he has the kind of impact in college football this year. I can see people in some conferences who don't get a lot of Aussie rules football players saying, you know, that doesn't look fair. Maybe we ought to change the rule. Just a thought. Yeah. We'll see. But, yeah, who knows what's going on there. Because then you might just guys that are, go right from Australian rules football to try out for the NFL. You know I mean? Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. That, that yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It'd be more like the NBA, too, where guys you know come out of uh, foreign countries and, and, heck, a third of the, the first-round draft is, are those guys. Um, and, and who haven't gone to college. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, let's. Uh, we're going to take a short break, come right back, and uh, keep answering your questions. So back in a minute. All right. We're back here on the Peristyle Podcast. Keely, where do you want to go now? Whose question's up? Don wants to know, has Justin Dietrich ever been mo- moved to the guard position during fall camp? Do you think he will ever be moved to improve the line? I think there's a chance. Uh, I don't think we've seen it yet. And they, I think they've got enough guys right now that they're trying to give give some when they uh, move guys around in positions. that, uh, uh, and, and it makes sense that uh, to keep him at center and, and pushing Brad Nealon and have the two of them really share, you know, the bulk of, of snaps. But, uh, but I think, uh, either one of those guys would have the ability to, uh, you know, to play a guard. They, they just haven't, 
we're seeing them move uh, Jalen McKenzie, for example, down, and or uh, you know Liam Jimmins or whatever, and 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 give those guys some shots. So I think uh, I think that happens first. But uh, but yeah, I mean they moved uh, uh, Justin and and, and Brett Nealon and uh, some of the jumbo package I think last year at times and uh, and used them in the backfield uh, as the uh, the the blocking back. So uh, I think they've got uh, a decent amount of comp- uh, confidence in those guys. Yeah. Mark says, who would you use for a free kick this year? Ben Griffiths, for sure. <laughs> like a, after a safety? Like not even question, I think. No, no question at all. No, because the ball just hangs up so much longer, and that's always the problem with the free kick when you you know, you know kick the, you know, the classic uh, kickoff. It, it, they, they get a you know flying running start, and you really haven't had a chance to um, um, go down and, uh, and and get coverage. Whereas with uh, with Ben, you'd have uh, you could have five or six guys, and he's also directionally uh, pretty much under control. So you could really decide where do you want the ball to come down. Uh, so without a doubt, Ben. We got one uh, another voicemail question for you, Dan. Here you go. Curtis from Moreno Valley. I hear Devin Williams is being teased at practice by Chris Steele. You can't catch. You can't catch the ball. This guy is so tall and so athletic and so fast. He needs to hang out with Amon Ra St. Brown until practice is over and then however long and whatever Amon Ra is doing after practice on the field, extra work, jugs machine, catches the ball upside down, all kind of practices. This is what Devin Williams needs to do to be at his best. And Marquis Step, I keep hearing people talk about him as just short yardage. May I remind you that he had some long runs in the scrimmage and in full 11 on uh, 11. Full contact, he had a long run. Give him runs in, in regular uh, situations, too. I think he deserves that, not just fourth and one or third and one. Give it to him on first and ten sometimes. Kurt, this from Moreno Valley. Um, I, I wish I could have heard the whole question, but if you could break it down, I, the sound just didn't come through as clearly as I'd like, and I don't want to misinterpret what Curtis said. Well, first, I think Curtis has been listening to the Family Feud podcast, which thank you, Curtis, because on the podcast we talked about how Chris Steele was teasing uh, Devin Williams for not catching the ball and saying you can't catch Devin, etc. Um, so Curtis was saying that he, uh, Devin needs to spend a lot of time with Amon Ross St. Brown and beyond the jug, mach- jug machine. And then he also said that... Uh, he always hears that Marquis Step he he's being used in the short yardage situations, but he wanted to remind everyone that uh, Marquis Step did have a, a breakaway touchdown in the the scrimmage before for the fall showcase, and that he should be given opportunities besides just short yardage situations. I think he will. I think he will. I, I just think Saturday was no way to evaluate how they're going to do the run game, and, I, and if Avai doesn't come back right away, I'm I'm not really sure how how they're going to line up and what they're going to do with it. Um, I, I don't, I don't think we know, uh, yet, uh, as far as, uh, the Chris, uh, Steele and, uh, Devin Williams thing, I think, uh, players know how much talent Devin's got. And 
you know, there are some, I don't know if it's hands as an issue. I think it might be a little bit of concentration. And I think uh, one of the things they wanted to do this year was just spit Devin playing, not having having to do like last year with everybody had to sit over sink every play and all of that. And that kind of limited his, his ability. Um, but I do think there is a, a, is a concentration factor, and he, he can catch the ball. Doesn't always, but uh, he certainly can. Uh, but uh, I do think there, the, the ability to concentrate and with younger players, that, that, that comes at, at different times. But uh, he and, uh, and Chris have had some great battles, and, and he's caught the ball uh, under you know, real pressure and Chris doing everything he can possibly do to – um, you know, climb uh, Devin's frame and not give him an inch, and uh, and so uh, I think we've seen some you know, real steps forward uh, from Devin. He can do an awful lot, uh, but uh, I don't know that he'll ever be that guy who basically just never drops the ball. I just, you know, some people are like that, uh, but uh, they kind of make up for it with uh, with some spectacular plays. Yeah. He had no uh, no shortage of those from uh, Devin Williams. So and uh, Marky Step, he's gonna be a stud. So you're you're good. You're all right, Curtis. Don't worry about it. We have a smart question well, from Ed in the Bay Area. He says there's been a lot of talk about Clay Helton and Lynn Swan both being on the hot seat, but I was never a f- I was never a fan of either hire. But I just can't understand how people can so blindly think both could be gone by midseason. Some of that is because people think the team won't be uh, at the Pac-12 championship level. However, I cannot see this team being as bad as last year. So my question is, why do people think that even with eight or nine wins, they're gone? Have there have there ever been people in USC leadership positions which are talking off the record to lead people down this road to think as such? Thanks and fight on, Ed, in the Bay Area. Ed, I think uh, I wouldn't tie the Lynn Swan situation to football that much. I don't, I don't know that, that that's the key issue. Uh, you've got you know, you've got the legal issues. You've got the uh, basketball. USC is the only school that got involved in both the uh, – uh, a basketball coach uh, arrested and, and pleaded guilty for the uh, um, in the Southern District of New York, I guess, uh, uh, case where they uh, went after uh, illegal benefits that were were given to kids and coaches or through coaches and all of that. And then you've got uh, USC has certainly been the prime player in the uh, you know the varsity blues thing or whatever the. Um, I don't know the, the admission scandal. Anyway, uh, where kids were um, admitted to school or got an extra benefit from being listed as a, a potential athlete on a particular roster, and, and USC's had uh, and more coaches than anybody in the country um, uh, fired. Uh, they've also had the only senior administrator uh, that had to be let go was involved in that. Uh, and so these are things that happen under under Lynn Swan's watch. And then you've got uh, an athletic department that's had to uh, you know tighten its belt this year, and with budget uh, cut you know cutting uh, as much as five percent you know we're hearing, and um, and then some uh, national championship coaches who who've left, and uh, it just uh, it would be a whole lot of things I think with Lynn in terms of management style and all of the things that it takes to run an operation like USC. Uh, 
with Clay, I, I don't think I wouldn't put the two together. Clay's in a different, you know, uh, situation, and I know there are people who say, "Well, what if they start two and four? What if they do this or that?" It's so hard for me to see that USC could possibly. I mean, it was almost impossible that USC had to let back-to-back coaches two years apart go in mid-season. I mean, that's never happened at this level. That could never happen. To let three of them go in the space of whatever it is, uh, um, eight years or something like that, you just can't do that, I don't think. So, uh, But I, I wouldn't put uh, that Lynn and, and Clay have the exact same situations uh, at all. Uh, they're, they're, in, they're in a different place, I think, as far as uh, their tenure at USC. And I think that the, if you read like Bruce Feldman or I know Pete Thamel wrote a piece recently and, and those guys really seem to feel that Lynn Swan is going to be gone at some point. And, uh, you know, Carol Fult, the new president's coming in, has a lot of fires that she needs to uh, attend to. Um, the athletic department is one of them, you know, having football, basketball and baseball. What's it, the first time they've all had a losing record in like decades, right? I forget what the stat was. Yeah, yeah. It, it's been a long time. Um, so I think a lot of the thought would be is that Lin Swan does get let go. Maybe she brings in someone that, well, you hope she brings in someone that's been an athletic director before, cause that would be a, a, a welcome change uh, for USC. But if you do that and USC starts off slow, um, you know, maybe a new athletic director doesn't make a change at head coach right away, but, uh, probably is more likely to than like a Lin Swan who, uh, you know, publicly backed uh, Clay Helton after last year's five and seven season. So um, you could see, you know, if, if if USC struggles and ticket sales are down, and like Dan said, the athletic department's having problems, a new athletic director would most likely, uh, you know, would be more likely to make a change, I would think. But would he make a change, or he sh- or she make a change during the season? Uh, like Dan said, it's happened twice in a row. It's hard to say, but if the Coliseum's empty. And everything's just going, you know, and you know they're two and four, and everyone's going flipping out. Then, yeah, they 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 might not have a choice. You hope not. That's not the case, but you're right. And then, where are you if you had to do it three times? Oh my goodness, yeah. it'd be like uh, it would be like uh, people would say, you know, I wonder if there's a connection hiring three straight athletic directors who have zero experience as athletic directors. I wonder if that kind of build up to a place where <laughs> where you had to let three football coaches go in the middle of the year. I mean, really, come on. Yes, he just has to do better than that. I mean, you just can't keep doing it. But but I would think uh, uh, people, everybody listed Lynn's got on the hottest seat. And I know people at USC, well, how do you know that? I mean, uh, excuse me, that Clay is on the hottest seat in the country of coaches. Everybody said, how do you know that? What about, you don't know what Lynn is thinking. I think the problem there is Lynn is on a hotter seat than Clay. Without, I don't think without a doubt that he's on a hotter seat than Clay. So that decision may not be up to Lynn. And that's uh, the, the whole question there. Yeah. A lot of questions there. We have one final question. It's an interesting one from Daniel from L.A. He says, 
Do you think that the NCAA should allow a joint practice with a D1 school within the same region at least once during fall camp? Kind of like what the NFL does. Imagine a two or three day practice with USC and say San Diego State or UNLV, San Jose State, etc. Even though they're not at the same level, it would give the teams better looks going up against guys who are not their friends or teammates. They would face guys wanting to prove that they are just as good as they are and it would give you a better evaluation as to where your team team truly is midway through fall camp thoughts yeah i think it's a really good idea i know as high school coaches we would usually get two of those uh scrimmages against somebody uh else and it really did help you decide are we doing the right things and 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 instead of going against yourself and and i think i think it would really be a good idea uh they allow them to do it in basketball and uh, I think the USC very often plays San Diego State or somebody like that. And uh, that'd be a really good idea. Um, so, yeah, I'm all for that. That makes makes a whole lot of sense. So uh, They should do that. They should do that. I don't think they will. They actually, in the summer workouts, remember when we used to get wide open access to those things? They actually used to have like seven-on-seven matchups with like El Camino College. So they yeah. would come in there and they would actually, so instead of just like, running seven on seven against your own defense, you would actually get to run against, you know, other pretty good athletes across the set, you know, just to kind of get a look. And I, I think some rule change that they don't allow that to happen anymore. Um, but anything like that, I think would help because you do start off the season. I mean, the college football season is so important. You don't get preseason games, anything like that. So doing something joint with another program where you get to see other people that aren't the, the same people that you know really well, I think would be a big, uh, uh, a big benefit, but I, I, I don't see the NCAA doing that or allowing that. I mean, it's an advantage uh, to, I mean, it really would be an advantage this year just to see how are people going to play this offense? How are they going to defend this offense? And, and no matter what level, just to see somebody else with a different look and, and who doesn't know exactly what you're doing, how would they try to defend this? And I, I think you'll know after you know, by halftime, maybe of the uh, Fresno State game, but it would be—I uh, think it'd really be beneficial uh, if they uh, if they let them do that. I, I, and it's not all that expensive, even in the West, where you know teams are more spread out. Um, you could still do that. I know there might be somebody like uh, Colorado saying, "Well, we can't do it against Colorado State because we always play them, and they're our big rivals, and there aren't a lot of teams we could we could do it against or whatever." And, and there might be a little bit of that, but I, I don't. I don't think that's enough to say somebody have an advantage over, uh, you know, some of the other teams. All right. Well, I guess that's, uh, well, yeah, I, I've got one. I've been, uh, going back and forth with our guy, uh, uh, Stephen Poway. And, uh, oh, okay. he reminded me, yeah, he, he reminded me, it was brought up, uh, kind of a question about, he went to the USC Auburn game, the opener in, in Auburn uh, in 2003. And he remembers thinking, Man, the, the humidity and all, and Auburn is so fired. And they had all those guys that went on to the NFL. And he said he went really like scared to death, thinking this is not a good situation for USC. And then he said, honest to gosh, USC's players came out on the field. He said that team had a look in their eye that you just looked at them and said, they're not going to let Auburn in the game. I mean, they had, and he was right. And he said, USC ought to show that. And uh, if you guys haven't seen the highlight film, it's like a three and three minute and 15 seconds. If you go to YouTube and get the highlights of that game. And it's scary 
how USC went after Auburn. I mean, they just took them apart. And uh, I know I, my theory has always been the second part of that was a team like USC who gets to practice in perfect weather for the month of August against a team like Auburn that has to practice in the heat and the humidity of the southeast, USC has an advantage. And you can go in there and play for three hours and get out of Dodge, get on the plane and go home. And you're used to going full speed. And if you're in good enough condition, it isn't going to stop you in the game. Whereas a team like Auburn, for example, uh, they haven't even been able to go full speed because they have to watch what, what they do with those guys and get ready for the season. So it actually was like a double benefit, but the biggest benefit, as Steve said, was USC's attitude. It was just, we're taking their prisoners. We're not letting them in the game. We're just going to blast them out of here. And that's what they did with, you know, shutting them out, letting them across the 50, I think, once. And uh, that's the attitude if that could come back to USC. Not sure, you know, exactly how it's been lost or where it's gone. I mean, for example, you see it in USC fans now. For anybody that thinks USC, even with the sixth best roster in the country, if anybody thinks USC is going to have a potential successful season against 12 teams, none of whom have as good a roster as USC, and there are a lot of USC fans that say, you're crazy. USC can't do that. USC is awful. USC is terrible. And there is a whole lot of that. And USC, everybody probably has to figure out, how does USC get back to being USC and not being afraid and not having, you know, little confidence in, in, in what they're doing and how they could, you know, compete in the Pac-12. Uh, uh, it, it's an attitude change that, Go watch the Auburn-USC film from 2003. Watch the highlights. And the attitude of those USC players just comes right through the screen. I mean, it's just palpable what they thought was going to happen in that game. And that's what USC teams have to do. And we haven't seen it enough. But uh, it's got to start coming back. And and, and probably helps that the fans kind of think that way, too. I don't know that lowballing your expectations and saying, we just don't think this team can do very much or they're not. I just think that's not the way to do it. I think you got to have high expectations, and uh, then they got to go out and do it. But uh, but that's my take. But that's uh, it was never, uh, I thought, that, that there was something different going on at USC. You know, they had the great come, you know, come behind in 2002, and it sort of established themselves like we're back. But then to go and carry it over to the opener, uh, in Auburn against the team that the next year went unbeaten and you know, thought they should have been a, in the national championship game. Uh, that that was when USC said, basically, we really, really are back. And uh, USC needs to be able to do that. Yeah. And, they, and they got a chance. They got a chance this year to do that because of the schedule. They can do it at home. Yeah, it's a, I mean, the schedule's tough, but you win all those games, you're you're a nationally relevant program again because you're winning all those games. But if you don't, then it's just what everyone expects to happen, and <laughs> it's going to be turmoil and craziness. And uh, but that's why we love the sport. We have no idea what's going to happen, so we're going to check it out and uh, and see. It starts with Fresno State in uh, a week and a half or so. So all right, well, I guess we'll wrap it up. 
Thanks for all the questions. Uh, we Lots do appreciate that. Yeah, don't forget. We'll have uh, Colin Coward along with uh, Harvey Hides. If you have any questions, send those in. Two, that's Keely Yor over there sitting next to me. Dan Weber on the line. I'm Ryan Abraham. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Peristyle Podcast. We do love that you love the show and sending questions and all that stuff. All the feedback is wonderful. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. And we will talk to you next time. You may have noticed that shopping at Trader Joe's is unlike shopping at other markets. People ask us all the time how we manage to have such unique, interesting, and delicious products at such great everyday prices. This is Dan Bain of Trader Joe's. The answer is simple. It's all in the way we do business. We buy directly from the manufacturer whenever possible. This helps to keep our costs low, and we pass those savings on to you. No gimmicks, just great values at honest prices. Every day at Trader Joe's. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. 